Good morning. The reading for today is from Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the, is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Mackenzie. Good morning, church. A little fire and brimstone for us today. It's going to be fun. Woo! Revelation, am I right? Okay. If you are new here, welcome. I'm really glad that you made the time to come, whether it was by invite or someone forced you into it, you lost a bet. Either way, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to the greatest group of people that I have ever served with, and I mean that. This is a really, you have found yourself in a really special place. The people here are incredible. I hope we can do whatever we can to help you get connected here. If you're here and you want to get more deeply connected, we'd love to help you do that. This is the family of God, and it's just a beautiful, wonderful mess, isn't it? We're all in it together, though. Uh, But church, thank you for making this such a welcoming place to all the new folks when they come. Appreciate that. All right, well, I don't think I said who I am. I'm Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Frank, our regular teaching pastor, is getting back into town soon, and he'll be back next week. So pray for safe travels for him. And we are almost at the end of our Revelation study. And I don't know about you all, but it's felt like a bit of a whirlwind. It's been good. But we're covering huge sections of text at a time, and that's been challenging at times. I hope, like me, you feel like you've gotten your head around some of the images a little more clearly in here. You feel like you can wrangle this amazing book and uh, not be quite so intimidated by it, hopefully. This is week 11 of 12, so next week is it. And then we're on to Advent, and let me spoil the fun a little bit. Next year, we're really looking forward to, uh, we've got plans to study the Old Testament, like the book of Esther and Psalms and Proverbs. We're really excited for that. We're going to be looking at New Testament books, like in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and one of Paul's letters to Timothy. So we're really excited. It's going to be such a great year next year together. All right, so this week's text is what most commentaries call some of the most challenging text in scripture. And next week, Pastor Frank will be preaching one of what's called the most beautiful passages in scripture. I think you can see what he was getting at here. He's a good planner. (laughs) So we have God's final war and judgment this week, and next week the kingdom is finally, ultimately, permanently come to earth. Now perhaps this week, more than ever, we need a right framework for how to study this great book. Now, if you were here last week and you heard all of this, just bear with me. But if you missed last week or if this is your first week, we've been saying this whole time that this book is full of images and symbols which are about preparing 
not predicting. We are to prepare for a future reality that has begun now with Christ. Frank said, we are the welcoming committee. So we're not to spend our time calculating predictions. This book isn't even a chronological list of events. It's not a code to be deciphered. It's meant to, here's the purpose, to wake us up to the realities of heaven, to remind us of the great reckoning coming of God, to give us hope of the assured victory of Jesus over sin, Satan, and death, and suffering. So, church, I hope that today, like every week has been, will be an encouragement to you all, that things won't always be this way, whatever it is that you're facing, and that there's something of yours in heaven. What a great hope that is. We've said, interestingly, in Revelation that there are more Old Testament references in Revelation than any other book. And in this passage today, where we're about to read, one of the pastors showed this on the preaching collective where we kind of share our ideas together. Every single verse is an allusion to an Old Testament reality or symbol or something like that. That's incredible. It's incredible. So I'd love to pray for us. Would you pray with me before we open God's word and study it? Lord, thank you for your word. What a gift it is. And on weeks like this, we remember that this is sometimes not an easy book to get our head around, to understand. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you go before us and prepare the soil of our hearts, God, to hear your word, to be encouraged with this full picture of who you are, Jesus, not... Not some cultural fake version of you, but the full picture, God. Help us to see that. And my prayer, God, is that you'd help us to see it and and that it would compel our hearts of your beauty in the fullness of who you are. And Holy Spirit, we need you to do that work. So please bless our time together in your word. Make us more like you, Jesus, when we leave this place than we were when we came in. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week ended with this great marriage supper of the Lamb. It was this beautiful passage of the bride being ready for God. And the bride is you and I. It's the global church, all the Christians making herself ready. Our text today begins with Jesus, the victor, riding in on a white horse. And the color of the horse is significant. White symbolizes victory already won. So this is less of a war and a battle and more of a victory march. So let's read that together. We'll read Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So right away, any like heavy metal fans in the room, you must love this imagery, right? I see you out there. 
You must love this imagery, right? There's so much going on here. We already previously discovered this image of Jesus as the reaper. Yeah, come on. So we're given all these rich images describing the appearance of this rider. He's faithful and true. Those are names given to Jesus elsewhere in scripture. He's a righteous judge. His eyes, isn't that description interestingly? Uh, Eyes of fire being the piercing and purifying eyes of fire. Verse 12, many crowns on his head. He's the king of kings after all. Interestingly, in verse 12, we see a name that nobody knows, which is interesting. But John's trying to make it really obvious for us to pick up who he means here. And the most obvious one is when he says he's the word of God. Remember in John's letters, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. He's like, are you guys following? The word was God. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word. That's who he's talking about. So he's saying here, this rider on the horse, you get who it is? It's the word. It's Jesus. Verse 14, from his mouth comes a sword. Again, metal fans, you are eating this up. From his mouth comes a sword. It's the truth of his word that's going to destroy. That's an interesting picture, right? Think about it as an echo of creation, right? Good Trinitarian theology says that Jesus was present in creation. How was Jesus present? He was the word spoken, right? So his word went out and accomplish the work of God by creating. And here it's the words of Jesus that that divide like a sword and kill with a sword. It's just a reminder to me of what power the words of Jesus hold. In our hands, we have the word of God. Remember how powerful the word of God really is. It's the word of God, it's the truth of God that here in our story overcomes and defeats and conquers. How? By bringing truth, wielding truth. Praise God for his word. Verse 15, here is where it's described his robe uh, at the bottom of the robe is covered in blood. Here in verse 15, we see how that happened. What's Jesus doing? He's marching around the wine press of the wrath and the fury of God. I mean, that is a a terrifying image. Verse 16, I remember using verse 16 here. It looks to me like Jesus has a tattoo, right? I know that's silly. I used to use that verse when I got my first tattoo and there was a guy in the church who went, oh no, you're going to hell now. (laughs) Oh, he was so sad for me. And I'm like, yeah, but look at Revelation Look at Revelation 19.16, right? Now, I don't know if that's a tattoo the way that we might think of it, but it's probably not Sharpie either, right? I guess what I'm saying is in heaven, there's probably a tattoo shop of some kind. <laughs> I, I hope it's true. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Let's read on Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Wow. So it's not called a sword for no reason. Jesus came to use it, to wield it. And here we see the, the aftermath of, of Jesus wielding the sword of truth. Now, although the language here is so intense, especially with the birds, the birds are a callback to Old Testament curse language like that found in Ezekiel. It is so intense, though, there's no denying that. So a couple of theological terms of significance here. First, it's no coincidence that if you look at how Revelation 19 begins, it begins with a feast. And now here we see Revelation chapter 19 ends with a feast, but they couldn't be more different, right? One is the, the marriage feast of the Lamb, and here is the great feast of God and his wrath. There's a stark and, I think, sickening contrast here between these two meals. And to help reconcile this, Eugene Peterson, he wrote a really beautiful poetic book of commentary on Revelation. He calls these two not incongruent at all, but actually complementary. We should appreciate both of these as they complement one another. The embrace of love, we get that part, marriage, supper of the lamb, great, all in and the assault on evil. Together, they are not in polar tension. They are defined by one another. They feed into one another. This is a two-sided glimpse of our reason to worship God. And we forget one of them sometimes, don't we? We hinted at this last week. But Psalm 96, 10 through 13, calls us very clearly that we ought to worship God loudly for his judgment of sin, his just and good and right justice of sin. And that could be difficult for our minds to embrace. That might not be an image of, of God or Jesus that you think about very often, but scripture talks about it. Our culture has no framework for a lack of tolerance for our minds to embrace a lack of tolerance, except, except using that in the negative sense. But this is the God of the Bible refusing to be tolerant of sin. It's the God of the Bible we're talking about, not a fake, cultural, lightweight version. This isn't plastic Jesus. This is the real thing. And love and judgment are complementary and in the same chapter. Secondly, it's theologically significant here that those who were deceived, did you catch that in verses 20 and 21? Those who were deceived by the beast have no excuse in this judgment. They too are destroyed. Now you might look at that and go, wait, but they were deceived. Is that their fault? Apparently being deceived is not an excuse. And that, that should scare us because being deceived is easy to do in a lot of different ways. Now, it says that it brings up this mark of the beast thing again. You might, you might hear that and have questions. We, we already covered this back in earlier chapters, but 
the shorthand way of saying that is the mark of the beast is to Satan what the Shema is to God. And the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6. This was a visual reminder to all who saw you, who you worship. That's the point. It's a visual of, of a mark of identity, who you worship. And Revelation 13 describes its opposite. There's a mark on the forehead of those that worship the beast. So it's about who you worship. And the mark is being given as a warning, and scripture is filled with warnings of false teachers. Don't listen to them. Don't be deceived. Scripture does not want us to be deceived because it's not an excuse. So how do we do that? I mean, that's a whole separate sermon, right? But I want to at least give you a a nod here. We as a church must be serious about the gospel. We must know God's word well enough as individuals, not just preaching it up here, but as individuals, we must know God's word well enough to discern right from wrong. And when there's a question, we must go here for the answer. That should be our discipline. We should surround ourselves, like those in this church, with Jesus-loving Christians who will sharpen us, challenge our thinking. Have you thought about this or that? Push back on each other a little bit. This is the way we fight deception, is through truth spoken in love to one another. That's the Ephesians 4, uh, 15. The purpose of speaking truth in love is to help one another grow up into the image of Christ. That's the point. That's what we're all here to do. So more could be said about that. But our text continues with chapter 20. Let's read verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this text is the core of what those commentators are saying when they say this is a challenging text. That, that what we just read, that's the one. So if you're sitting here going, what is that? What do I do with that? What on earth is he going to say to make sense of all that? 
This text, I'm just going to focus on this thousand-year thing because this is the core of the debate. This is the millennial reign, and maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe you've studied this at length before. Maybe you're sitting here going, okay, is he just going to nerd out in a show off his seminary schooling or something and talk about the millennial? Yes, I am. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it easy for us, though. The point is, great scholars who have debated this view... They debate over the sequence of events. That's what's at stake here. So big caveat. Pastor Frank goes into way more detail on this in his video. We've referenced it a few times. It's available on that QR code. If you just go to our YouTube channel, you'll find it. And you and Frank can just geek out about all the details. But I'll give you the nutshell version, okay? There's three main views. And it's all about where in the final events of the world this millennial reign that's being talked about sits. So first, there's the pre-millennial reign, meaning Christ comes pre this millennium. When we, then we have, after that, the final judgment scene, which we're about to read at, at uh, the end of chapter 20. So Christ returns, then there's a thousand-year reign, then there's the final judgment of God, pre-millennial. And then there's a post-millennial view. That means Christ comes post the millennial reign, and judges when he comes. This view often includes a theology of the rapture happening to inaugurate the millennial reign. So think left behind books, all of that. That's this view. The theology on the rapture comes mainly from 1 Thessalonians. Then there's the amillennial view, and that holds that the millennial reign is a symbol in Revelation of the church age now. In other words, we are in the millennial age, so to speak. And Christ will come to judge the world when the time is done. Okay, so is anyone listening anymore? <laughs> some people are like, yeah, I'm all in. Okay, so some people love this stuff. They eat it up and they're like, wait, you didn't do enough. And then others are like, I've been sleeping the last five minutes. Let me know when you come back to something else. Okay, so there's a fourth millennial view, and that's for you all. It's the pan-millennial view, meaning I don't know when or where. It's just all going to pan out in the end. Hey, there it is. So in our membership packet, this is listed as an open-handed issue. And I say that because I want to point you to where you can find more information. There's not a ton there. But the point is, it's marked as an open-handed issue, which should tell you something about how to engage this in your community. It means you engage it with an iron fist, and you force everyone to come to your view, right? No, we... we, we Hold it loosely with an open hand. Okay, this isn't a gospel issue at stake here. So anyway, check out that video from Pastor Frank. Uh, he goes into more detail. For now, we're going to move along. Revelation 20 comes to a close now starting in verse 11. And this is what we read in our scripture reading. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they, they each, let's see, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the sequence of events here seem to be, there's a great throne, it's a white throne, again symbolizing the victory is already done, and God is seated on it, like a judge taking their seat, ready to enact justice. And then the dead, all people in fact, represented here, are brought before the throne, and the books are opened, just the books. So you might hear that and go, wait, what are these books? How many are there? Where are they kept? Is there a library? What's, what's going on? We don't get all those answers. But seemingly, these are books of record containing all the deeds of those awaiting judgment. So think about that. All the deeds. Every last one. How long has it been since you've remembered that those little things that you do that you know are wrong, but you're like, I'm not hurting anybody. I don't know. Nobody saw. Maybe it's fine. There's a record being kept of those. And I'm right there with you. And then there's another book opened, a precious book. This is a separate book in which is recorded a list of those who have trusted in the Lamb. We'll talk more about that. But then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, the place of God's wrath. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life is also thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the apparent order of events. So if that's right, then this is either a day of indescribable joy at having this record book read aloud, and then the book of life read aloud and you're pronounced innocent, an incredible day of joy or an incredible day of suffering. And it's permanent. There's no other judgment after this. So whatever the pronouncement is, is permanent and done. Now, I don't know how that might hit you, but that's what we're reading. That's what the Bible is saying. There's been a lot of good debate lately, and it's not new. This isn't anything new, but I've been hearing it more and more in my relationships in and out of the church. Questioning really this doctrine of hell, does the Bible really describe a place like this? And does God really send people to that? Now, on one hand, I want to be gracious and say, I understand where the heart of that is coming from. Because it seems to come from a place of love. What I know about God doesn't seem to line up with that. And, and these people, how could God do that? And so I just want to honor that question and, and agree. That may come from a place of genuine love. And, and I've got nothing against that. What I'm concerned with is how you find the answer to that question. That can be concerning. How you find the answer to that question, would God really do this? Is this who God is? Because I've seen that question lead many, many, many people further and further, questioning more and more about the God and the Bible and leading ultimately to questioning the Bible itself. Because it's all too easy to find a little echo chamber of people that agree. And they say, yeah, the thoughts you have are right. That's easy to do. This makes sense. That's easy to do. Leading you to wonder if the Bible itself is really true. If you can question the reality of hell here, then eventually you can start to question anything. Now, if that's you, to one degree or another, and you don't just want to sit around and force one of the pastors to agree with you, but you have a genuine question and you want to process this through, we would love to do that. The thing that we hear most often is, yeah, I've been thinking about that for about a year. Here's where I land, and I'm leaving the church. That's the thing we hear most often. 
I would love, I'm just saying on behalf of all the pastors and elders, we'd love to walk through that with you. We would. We'd love to answer questions, wrestle with it together, honestly and earnestly. We'd love to do that. So I'd like to briefly unpack some common, unbiblical views, misunderstandings of the doctrine of hell. Because as we said, the millennial reign is not a gospel issue, but I would argue that the doctrine of hell is. Otherwise, what is Jesus doing on the cross? What is our purpose in suffering at all, if that's not how it goes? So as we do that, full disclosure here, I'm not going to advocate for anything that comes against the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. That's like a no-go, because that's all I have. That's all we have, is the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, and that's the foundation. If you take that away, we have nothing to stand on at all. Christians have to hold that the Bible is good and right and true and clear and that it can be understood. We have to land there first. Now, this is important. Just because some doctrines are difficult, like the millennial reign, you go, wait, all these Christians are debating on this. Just because that's open for debate doesn't mean the whole thing is open for debate. There are things that the Bible teaches clearly, and unfortunately, hell is one of them. Jesus talked about hell almost more than anything else. Okay, so three, three main broad views, and there's lots of variations in the midst. But the first one would be a universalist or ultimate reconciliation view of hell. They would say that Jesus' work on the cross literally made a way for all, whether you accept it or not. Ultimately, love wins would be the shorthand way of saying that. The second would be annihilationism, that what Jesus offers is eternal life, And if you reject that, you simply die and cease to be. And they'll use verses like John 3.16, saying, look what's being offered here. It's eternal life. So you can accept that and have that or die and cease to be. Now, so much there. I wish we could unpack more. But just without trying to make too much of a straw man here, these two views ultimately fall short in taking the scope of scripture into context. They pick out one or two verses that seem to support, and then they run with that and kind of forget the rest here. Again, I love the heart there. And there's a part of my heart that would be like, oh, that would be nice if that was true. But this isn't the biblical view. It's not supported by the most scripture. And since I'm not willing to compromise there, we have to hold this third view. That's the third one. It's called eternal conscious torment. This is how redemption would view it in the membership packet. They define this as those who have set themselves unrepentantly against Christ and his kingdom will experience eternal conscious punishment in hell. That's a bitter pill. Man, it's a rough name. It's a rough doctrine. But we believe scripture is clear on this. The Bible does teach this doctrine. It's the least liked but most scripturally supported view of judgment. And like Frank said in, in earlier in Revelation, just because it's detestable to our ears doesn't make it not true. Spurgeon famously said on this doctrine of hell, he said this, when we speak of heaven and the joys of this life, let your face light up. Let your smile shine, your eyes twinkle. When you speak of hell, your ordinary face will do. 
How does that truth challenge your view of Jesus, church? You've heard me mention this a little bit before. The Bible portrays Jesus as a whole person. He's full of grace and truth. He's full of love and wrath, justice and mercy. He doesn't fit into culture's definitions of acceptable love. Revelation 19.12, we talked about this when we read it. There are parts of Jesus that are not known. We know a lot about Jesus and God and his character, but there's an aspect of Jesus that remains unknown. The point is this, is if our view of Jesus doesn't include his fullness, including his final kingly wrath, then our view of him is incomplete. The doctrine of hell, as terrible as it is, makes the person of Jesus that much more precious too. He took the fullness of God's wrath for you and I, and he did it willingly. This isn't cosmic child abuse, but he lovingly stepped in front of the train coming for all of us, God's wrath. Dane Orland says in his little book here, this is a little nine marks book, even if you're not a reader, come on, that's, you can do that. It's called Is Hell Real? And Dane Ortland in here says, the real scandal of this universe is not that there's a hell deserved by all, but that there's a heaven offered to all. Seeing Jesus as judge here makes his day-to-day gentleness to us more amazing. It makes his mercy when we fall, when we sin, and his response is kindness and mercy Wow, that's incredible. It makes his patient, patient grace with our very slow growth into his image at times that much more incredible. The full picture of Jesus is never boring. It's never dull. And if it is, it's probably because it's an incomplete picture. So when the books of record are opened and read aloud, it's going to make those Romans passages, 323, abundantly clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but another book is going to be read too. And so that makes Romans 8, 1 true. Because your name is in the book of life, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a reason for our unity together, church. For the Christians here, we can look at each other and say, your name is in that book. My name is in that book. What a great reason to go from here and tell others about this great hope. Jesus says, I want all people to be saved. He wants to add to that book. What a a motivation for mission that is. The more accurate your understanding of hell, the more precious the picture of Jesus. Remember that quote from Dane Orland, there is a heaven offered to all. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I just invite you in to speak to wherever our hearts are at right now. As we talk about something as heavy as these judgment texts, as we talk about the reality of the doctrine of hell as hard and detestable as that can feel to us, Holy Spirit, I invite you in to minister to us wherever we're at. Lord Jesus, would you um, remind us 
of your gentleness and your kindness towards sinners. And at the same time, we, we weigh that with this reality of your future judgment of sin. Lord, you offer us as a free gift heaven. As a free gift, Lord. If there are those in this room who have never accepted this gift of, of free grace, I pray that now would be the time that they'd come forward and ask for prayer. However, simply, just to say, I don't know, God's doing something in my heart. Would you pray for me? That's enough. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us with the fragrance of your fullness, Jesus, the fullness of who you are, in tension with all the easy things, the warm and fuzzy things, and still, Lord, you come as a conqueror, king of kings, to destroy sin. Lord, that can be hard for us, so we want to celebrate and we want to worship you for both of those things, for your goodness and your judgment. Holy Spirit, would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.